encouraging, inspiring, and empowering mothers on their parenting journey. Welcome to the O Baby Podcast. Being a mum can be overwhelming and unrelenting, we know. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the top tips, advice, and words of wisdom from experts and industry leaders to help you navigate your own path. It's the information you can trust. Mama, you got this. This episode is brought to you by H&M. Welcome to another episode of the Oh Baby podcast. I'm Angela Pedersen and today we're talking with Annette Farmosili, who is our resident sleep expert and is a trained baby and child sleep consultant through her business Serene Sleep. She's also a trusted sleep advisor for our friends at the sleep store. Welcome Annette. Thank you for having me. It's really wonderful <laughs> to be talking to you today. Yay. Yeah, it's the first time we've met too. So um, yeah, great to meet you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in the business of sleep. Okay, well, I've been working in the field of sleep for, gosh, nearly 23 years. So a long time. So I'm originally from the UK and um, I trained and qualified in the NHS and worked in that field for 13 years. So my job at the time was uh, as a community nursery nurse and I, my role was to support parents postnatally. So working with parents that had difficulties or challenges with behaviour, feeding issues. And back in 1999, it was identified in the community I worked in that a lot of parents were going back to work and were really struggling with sleep issues. And so I was very fortunate and was given the opportunity to run a fully funded um, sleep clinic, which was free to the community. Um, I was sent on lots of um, training courses. I shadowed other um, sleep clinics in, in my sort of area and trained up that way. And as you can imagine, a free service like that, um, I was inundated with referrals from midwives, from health visitors. Now, health visitors are similar to Plunkett nurses here in New Zealand. So I did that for 13 years and worked in a really diverse community. So I gained a lot of experience in working with different, different ethnic groups, um, different ages, and then fast forward to 2011, um, my husband um, persuaded me that we should move to New Zealand and start a new life. So back then I had two children who were sort of just under school age. So we moved to New Zealand and we now live in beautiful Arkles Bay in north of Auckland. And when we landed, I thought, well, what am I going to do with my time? And I've got all these skills and, and expertise. And there wasn't really an avenue for me in the health service here in New Zealand. So I decided to set up Serene Sleep as a private consulting business and really started off word of mouth um, and just got myself out there. Um, did a bit of writing for various magazines, love writing blogs. And just started really small while my children got settled in, settled into school life. And also I got settled into Kiwi life, making new friends, etc. Um, and that's now been going for 10 years. So I've been doing Serene Sleep over here for 10 years um, and pretty much providing the same service that I provided in the NHS as I do here. And sort of use all my knowledge and skills um, and doing that service here. Because let's face it, sleep 
challenges are the same worldwide. There's no different sort of sleep scenarios in Europe or the UK as there are here. Parents are facing those same challenges. And so that's what I've been doing. And I have a particular interest in toddler sleep. That's my mm -hmm. area of expertise. Um, I find resolving toddler sleep issues incredibly rewarding. And you can turn them around pretty quick when parents often believe they aren't resolvable. Um, it's amazing once you get parents to stand back and see it from their child's perspective, are they then armed with the skills um, to, to turn things around pretty quickly. Uh, interesting. That's so cool. So yeah, we're going to be chatting about toddler sleep in particular today, which is your area of expertise. What are some of the common problems you see parents having with regard to their toddler's sleep? So one of the, I suppose it's about three kind of common scenarios. Um, one of them is bed hopping. So toddlers that tend to wander out of their bed at night and pop into mum and dad's bed. Um, or it could be bed hopping in the evening where the child just won't stay put in their room. And they it tends to need a parent to lie with them or sleep in their, um, in their <laughs> bed with them until they go off. And then parents are sneaking out on all fours self-like out of the bedroom. Um, <laughs> That's very familiar. <laughs> um, or it could be night wakings with still needing a feed or having bottles or breastfeeds. Um, or it could be the dreaded early rising, which is really common um, in toddlers. And I think a lot of the reason for toddler sleep being kind of extra challenging is because toddlers, as we know, are armed with additional skills when you have babies, they tend to stay put in the cot. Although they protest and cry, they don't have the same skill set as toddlers who are obviously more mobile, who can stand and jump and shout very loud. So it makes it um, more challenging or it, or it appears that it's an unresolvable issue with those kind of extra skills, but it, it definitely is resolvable. Oh, nice. So I get a lot, I guess a lot of people think toddlers are t like too old to kind of train them out of these issues and that they may as well just write it out. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. In fact, it's so funny. I get a lot of parents reaching out for help with their 18 month old, two year old, and they ring me up and they say, I think I've left it too late because it's really old now and it just feels too, too impossible. And I say, absolutely not. It's never too late to change the course of a child sleeping, whether they're three or five. And I work up to um, age five and work a lot with preschool children as well. So honestly, it is never too late. But I think going back to what I talked about before, when you have a toddler that's armed with, you know, they can communicate, they can shout, they can run out of their room, they can escape their cot. Um, and of course, as we know, they're very loud and they can be quite persistent. You think that, oh gosh, it's just too hard. I can't face this toddler that's now fully active and fully engaged. But actually, you can turn that round to your advantage. So all those skills that they do have and how perceptive they are actually works in your favour because they are able to work things out when you do implement change. They're going to pick up on it quicker and they're going to understand those new kind of set of rules or rituals or boundaries. And so actually, when I say to parents, well, it's great that he can communicate. It's great that he understands kind of cause and effect because we can use those skills 
to our advantage and then parents are like oh gosh yes I can see what you mean now we can change that course quite quickly using those skills and I think a lot of parents when they're really bogged down with sleep deprivation and we all know that sleep deprivation robs us of not only um, clarity, um, patience, connection and all those things. It also robs us of hope, that ability to think that there is a way out. And I think when you kind of change the narrative on it and you get parents to kind of see things from their child's perspective and go, actually, yes, if we change these ingrained behaviours this is what's going to happen. It's going to open up a whole new door to better sleep um, or more solid sleep for the family, which is then give the, giving the parents that ability and clarity to move forward. So it's just changing that perspective on total sleep, really. Yeah. So um, outside of our, our, our sort of pre-arranged questions, but like, What's an example of like a transformation, like, you know, from a, this was a scenario to this is what it looks like now. Like, yeah. how did you mentor parents into like a good sleep? So I'm <laughs> I like everything you're saying just reminds me so much of like my experience. Mm. I remember once my eldest daughter, Ella, she was, she was really tall from like the get go. She was like 60 centimeters at birth. Like, honestly, she wow, was, just, she was a giant and she still is, which works to her advantage with sports. But, um, um, she, we, we had this card that like, the you know the the rails up here and the mattress is almost on the ground so like it's a massive like you know yeah. to feet to get your leg over but because she was so tall she just would jump over wow. and you know she'd be out and I remember one night um, my husband was at work and was I don't know where he was he was somewhere and she came out of her bedroom and I counted it seventy four times. And by the end of it, I think I like put a chair under her door handle and I could hear her crying, which also broke my heart. So I put some earphones on and I turned the music up really, really loud. And I just tried to keep saying, yeah. it was just so awful. And it was just like, okay, we need to do something yeah. like, what would you have, what would you have done to my old self back then? Yeah, so um, so I think what well, first of all I would um look at the age. So I mean, how old was your daughter? Just out of interest. Um, under two. Under two, yeah. Okay, so we need to know that toddlers have very little control of their impulses, which means when they um are able to climb out of the cot in exactly in your daughter's situation, she learned it. She was like, "Oh wow, this is an incredible skill I've learned. I've mastered the art of climbing out of the cot." And so what happens is when they feel that skill and they learn it and they feel a real sense of achievement, they want to practice it, practice it, practice it over and over again, which is why you had the two time <laughs> doing it, because she wasn't able to control her impulses just to be able to sort of climb out of the cot and need to keep doing it. It's almost like a knee jerk reaction. I need to climb out of the cot. I've learned it, so I'm going to keep doing it. And so it's it's making parents aware that that's normal um, for them to feel like that. But it's also about setting those limits from day one. So if um, you have a toddler in this situation, which is a really common scenario, the whole escaping the room, is to be really clear from day one and keep putting them back 
And sometimes a safety gate across the bedroom door can really help. So it's a gentle barrier. It's setting a gentle boundary. Um, they can still have the door open. They can see out. But what you're saying is, I want you to stay in your room, in your bed. I'm here to support you, but we're going to go back to bed. And if you can nip it in the bud on the first day, honestly, it will be a much, much easier long term. But if you let things slip and there's kind of three or four days or a couple of weeks of them being able to come out of the room, perhaps wander into the living room or hop into your bed, then it becomes an expectation that that is what's going to be on offer. Mm. So it's about almost being one step ahead of your toddler. And I often say that to parents when um, you're moving your toddler into a bed is think about what they are capable of doing. And now you might have had a really good sleeper that stays in their cot and then suddenly you give them that opportunity to have freedom to be able to open the door or come out. They're going to take it because they're exploratory toddlers. That's what they want to do. They're inquisitive. But also what they're doing is testing the waters, testing the boundaries, just yeah. saying, okay, well, this is how things used to be when I was confined to the cot. I wonder what's on offer now I've got the freedom to escape my room. And so it's just about setting those boundaries. You're changing the boundaries from what you had in the cot to what you're now going to have when the child's in a bed. And it's just almost being one step ahead. Um, and if you're really unfortunate, you could have a toddler that delays escaping. So I've worked with families where they move them into a bed and all goes great. And then a month later, they suddenly cotton on ah, I wonder if I can open that door and what would happen and you get caught off guard. So I often say to parents, it might happen immediately or it might happen a month later. So just be prepared for your toddler to want to come out of their bedroom. It's a normal thing for them to do. At H&M, you'll find everything from maternity wear to newborn clothing essentials. H&M's baby collection offers cute styles and cozy basics that are not only kind to baby's sensitive skin, but also to the environment. You'll find the softest, most comfortable clothing that's been carefully crafted with your baby's safety and comfort in mind. Discover H&M's baby range at your nearest H&M store today. So I've got a plane going over me right now. Bear with, bear with. Uh, so what are some of the most common misconceptions about sleep consultants? Yeah, um, good <laughs> question. Um, I think probably the most common yeah, misconception is that um, we're going to suggest or uh, going to suggest cry it out methods or that cry it out is the only way to change a child's sleeping. Now, it's definitely not something I advocate. I don't believe in ripping the band-aid off, putting a child in a cot or a bed and saying, off you go, go to sleep. Mm. Um, and in fact, I would say probably 80% of phone calls that I get, that's the first thing the parent asks me. So I'm literally picking up the phone. I just want to check with you, Annette. Are you going to tell me to leave my baby to cry? And I'm like, no, definitely not. Um, in fact, I have a whole bump of information that I email to parents when they are worried about the methods I'm going to use. But I would say that's probably the most common misconception that sleep training is going to involve a whole heap of crying. It's going to involve um, outdated, archaic methods that perhaps were adopted in the 70s and 80s. 
Um, and that's the only way to change a child sleeping. And absolutely it isn't. <laughs> Most definitely not. And not something I would be recommending um, yeah. either. Yeah. So good. It's not my jam. I just can't be it. Like it's 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 traumatic for me. Like I remember like trying to do that for one of them and it was like, no, this isn't working for either of us. <laughs> so no. Anyway, all good. Uh, so what are some steps that parents can take with their babies to ensure that good sleeping, like to, to ensure good sleeping habits when they reach toddlerhood? So with regards to sleep, um, and I, I want to stress it's really important that um, there's no right or wrong way to do sleep um, with yeah. your child. If you choose to do sleep for your baby, whether that's rocking to sleep, feeding to sleep, driving around, sleeping, co-sleeping, whatever it is, if it's working for you, you don't need to change it. If, however, the disturbed nights, the continual sleep deprivation is taking a toll on you, and you want to change the course of your child's sleeping and the sleep deprivation, like I said, is robbing you of all the kind of good things in life, the patience, the connection, etc. Then it is time to make changes. And what's really good about babies is they rely heavily on their senses to interpret the world around them. So we can tap into their senses to kind of give them an understanding of what sleep is all about and when sleep is going to happen. Now, what I generally say to parents is, is it's about giving babies warning signs that sleep is happening. And if you think about it, when you feed your baby about 30 to 60 seconds before you offer either a breastfeed or a bottle feed, you will give your baby a warning cue that that feed is coming. Mm. So bottle feeding, the shaking of the bottle, the popping of the cap, you might place a bib around your baby's neck, you might pop yourself in that preferred position your baby starts to salivate in anticipation of that feed coming their legs and arms are going because they're expecting that feed they're anticipating they're recognizing those familiar cues and they start to get ready for food now the same applies for sleep if we can give babies a bit of prior warning that sleep time is coming it will make a world of difference rather mm -hmm. than just taking your baby from underneath the baby gym and plonking them into the cot and saying right off you go you need to go to sleep now they're going to go well hang on a minute I was one minute in a very stimulating environment and now I'm in this room what are you expecting me to do mm. whereas if you lead them into sleep give them a little bit of prior warning and I don't mean a lengthy kind of 20 half an hour minute half an hour sort of sleep routine I mean just five minutes of having the same clear rituals and cues for sleep that are predictable and consistent every day your baby will then be able to tune into sleep because they'll recognize those cues and start to shut down for sleep and it's not just about um, the teaching the self-settling process it's about changing up the environment looking at awake time so how long has your baby been awake for and those are really important because what you want to achieve is when you're putting your baby down to sleep, you want to make sure they have what's called sleep drive. Now, that's the ability to connect with sleep. So if you imagine every day your baby's been awake for the right amount of time and they're showing all the signs for sleep and you take them into the room and you follow a set of rituals. And that might be simple things like going into the bedroom, 
pulling the curtains, letting it become nice and dark, popping on some white noise, having a little cuddle and a sing, zipping them into a sleeping bag, popping a little comfort toy next to them that perhaps has been down your top and smells of you. After three or four days of practicing little rituals, babies start yawning when they hear the zip on the sleeping bag because they know that sleep's coming because you've given them the prior warning. And if they're loaded with sleep pressure or sleep drive, they're going to make the connection with feeling sleep pressure and all those little rituals around them is it must be time for sleep. And it can make a world of difference. And for some parents, that's all they need to do is literally just tune things up, change the environment, create some predictability. Mm. And babies respond really well when their days are predictable. It actually makes them feel secure yeah. and attached when yeah. their day is feels the same and it feels familiar. Um, yeah. And if you can keep the environment the same, and even just by adding a couple of drops of, say, lavender oil on the cot sheet or on their lovely or on the top of their sleeping bag, they'll smell that smell and it will send a trigger to their brain that it's the sleep time smell. It's incredible mm-hmm. how perceptive babies are and how by tapping into their senses, by using smell, darkness, white noise, the kind of snugness of a sleeping bag or a swaddle can really help key babies into sleep. And it doesn't have to be about leaving them to cry it out. It's just changing the environment and and giving them the opportunity to sleep as well. And a lot of families that I work with um, or have worked with over the years is parents tend to assume that they have to rush and do sleep for their babies and don't stand back and give them the opportunity to enable sleep for themselves. And quite often I'll be, sitting on the floor in a darkened room with a mum holding her hand and she's popped the baby down and we've got the environment right and the baby's been awake um, long enough um, and the environment is conducive to sleep. I'm sort of sitting back and going, mum, just just hold off. He's trying. He's trying to enable sleep for himself. Watch his cues and often he'll be perhaps having a bit of a grizzle and a grumble and a squirm. But what he's actually saying is I'm feeling sleep pressure I'm loving this environment. Just give me a bit of space to try and figure it out. But if you rush in the moment, they're placed on the in the on the cot mattress. They're not going to find those skills. So it's about letting them find their way, mm. but with mum supporting alongside. So you're kind of saying, well, I'm setting you up. Here are the tools. Here's the environment. I'm giving mm. you the right amount of time. You had a lot of stimulation, but now it's time for sleep. Let's see if you can do it by yourself. And if you can't, I'm here to support you. But I want to see if you can you know, give you that opportunity to do it. And sometimes that's all it takes. Um, and one thing I want to stress, I mean, I, I've been doing this for over 20 years. And 20 years ago, we did not have video monitors. In fact, we had very old fashioned um, kind of audio monitors that were pretty rubbish picked up the neighbor's baby crying and not your own and and so fast forward now um we've got these incredibly high-tech devices that you know amplify sounds alert you to every movement they have motion sensors and um tell you everything that's going on in the cot and they do make parents more anxious Mm -hmm. and what i try and say to parents is 
babies have always woken up that's what babies have always done they they, they need to wake up it's like a safety mechanism of, like as they come to the end of a sleep cycle they need to rouse and that's perfectly normal but it doesn't mean you need to dive in with support and if you've got a monitor next to you whether it's during the day or at night that's beeping at you alerting you the screen's lighting up because baby has moved mm. you're going to be then over anxious you're going to go well my screen's telling me baby's awake so do i need to do something whereas actually what your baby's doing is just navigating a sleep cycle doing what they've always done is which is rouse periodically throughout the night so i do find that camera monitors can cause unnecessary i guess anxiety um and i'm trying to say to parents you know listen to what your maternal compass is telling you don't go on what the monitor is telling you and when your baby cries you will hear your baby cry um mm -hmm. you know we all remember those scenarios where we're in the shower and we can hear our babies crying you know we're in tune to our babies you will hear them cry um but you don't need to rush in because your monitor is telling you that your baby has um opened their eyes um mm -hmm. in fact i was at a home couple of weeks ago and it was an evening consult um and baby was 10 months old and was waking um periodically throughout the night we're in the lounge having a chat and there on the coffee table is the latest high-tech video monitoring system i mean this it was like a mini ipad um and i'm chatting to mum and dad and mum stops and she said to her husband um can you go and sort him out and i went hang on, um, is he awake? And she said, well, look on the screen, he's sitting up. And I went, yep, but he's not crying. Let's just wait, let's just watch and let's just see what's going to happen. And they were just, oh my gosh, I've got to go to him because he's awake. I said, yes, he's awake, but he's not distressed. He's not calling for you. He's changing position. And interestingly, he had recently learned to sit in the cot. So he was just practicing that skill. Sure enough, 20 minutes later, he rolled around the cot, grabbed his dummy, and he went off to sleep himself. Now, because mum could see into the room and she could see that the dummy had fallen out, her instinctive or instant reaction was, I need to go and do it for him because mm. she could see it. And I said to the mum, if you didn't have the camera monitor, would you have known any of that had happened? And she said, no. And I said, well, then you don't need to know. Baby wasn't needing you. He was just rousing at the end of a normal sleep cycle. But because the camera was there, they misinterpreted that brief arousal as being, I need to go in. And of course, they were then chronically sleep deprived as a result because mm. they were intervening too soon. And this, this, this poor um, baby wasn't actually being given a chance. No yeah. fault on the parents. They were just watching the monitor. Yeah. yeah. I so relate to that. Not even with the monitor. I, I we, our, our eldest. <laughs> I, I hope I hope one day she'll give me permission to talk about her all this time. <laughs> I might just let her know. Hey, uh, permission granted, please. But um, yeah, she she was a great sleeper for the first fourteen weeks, and we went camping, and I didn't want to wake up any um, you know, campers, and so if she made any noise beside me, I was yeah. you know just all over her so um that didn't really work out too well for years after <laughs> but um, I just think of like the things that sleep deprived parents do and we, we were one of them 
you know, we, she would cry if she didn't have her dummy. So I'd, you know, go and find yeah. the dummy, put it in her mouth, go to back to bed. But she'd cry because we taught her that yeah. if she cried, we, we would come in, Absolutely. we'd find the dummy for her and we'd put it in her mouth. Yeah. And then um, we kind of got so sleep deprived that um, my husband found or bought a, <laughs> this, is, this is like a hilarious story. He found a turntable. Right like a record turntable and uh, we had a baby hammock and he put it up on the shelf and he MacGyvered it in such a way that there was some elastic attached to it so that it bounced the hammock so that she would just be bounced to sleep. Wow, my goodness. The <laughs> thing you do for sleep. <laughs> Honestly, if you're that desperate, like, oh, my gosh. But we were creating another rod for our back because yeah. then, you know, if the turntable stopped working or whatever, you know, you'd have to bounce her, you yeah, know. Absolutely. It was just, yeah, yeah, desperate absolutely. situations. But um, you do anything yeah. for sleep. Um, <laughs> you really and, do. <laughs> absolutely. And um, I mean, I've got so many funny stories of families I've seen over the years, but um, one family that springs to mind right now, this was in the UK, she was chronically sleep deprived, this poor mum. And this, this, I think he was about 15 months old and he woke multiple times a night. And they lived in an old house that had creaky floorboards. And so what she had done was she had put masking tape across the bedroom floor on all the all the squeaky floorboards so when she entered the room or left the room once the baby was asleep she knew <laughs> which floorboards to avoid Genius. And, um, <laughs> when i opened the baby's bedroom door to look at the sleep environment i was like oh gosh have you got holes in your carpet and she said, no, 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 that's how I know how to escape the room. And I was like, okay, I think it, I think it's to get I love that woman. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I love laugh about it now and talk about it in workshops and things, but um, that's how desperate things had got for her. And she said mm -hmm. she she literally crawled out of the bedroom um, like a sort of stealth-like, as if, you know, stopping a bomb going off. Um, and she had learned to do it, but... If you're doing that six or seven times a night, which she was, and the precision precision that was involved to exit that bedroom requires a lot of skill. And of course, that means that she was not getting any sleep at all because she was constantly trying to escape the room without waking the baby. And she was chronically sleep deprived oh, and really that. was suffering as a consequence. And I think once I saw the masking tape, she realized, okay, this is a little ridiculous. I think it's one of those aha moments. It was. It uh, was. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> I yeah. feel like the masking tape is pretty reasonable. We've got creaky floors. I totally get that. <laughs> but but at the same time, yeah, yeah. there's there's Absolutely. something going on. Oh, <laughs> fun. Oh, yes, oh, those days. So good. And I think um I think sort of touching on sleep deprivation. I think um these days and also work with a lot of parents is what we tend to forget is parents are raising their families or raising their little ones in isolation more than ever just the way the world is right now um we don't tend to have as much access to family support i mean the saying goes it takes a village to raise a child and if you're not you haven't got that village of support around you then it's extra hard and we tend to play down the 
it, the effects of sleep deprivation, particularly chronic sleep de deprivation. I mean, let's face it, it's why it's used as a form of torture. Yeah. It still is, because it robs us of all the good things. Um, and one of the things I found with working with families over the years, and I always, when I finish working with them, I talk to them about the changes that have happened in their lives and look back to where they were when I first met them. I mean, I can tell very quickly the changes that have happened, particularly over the phone, the tone in the mother's voice shifts. They're more willing to go out more and just be more engaged, but it's the connections that improve mm. and the level of patience. Because when you're experiencing chronic sleep deprivation and you're not getting that rest, obviously it affects your mental health. But if you're trying to stimulate a baby that is also sleep deprived, you're going to feel resentful about that child. It's, it's completely normal to feel like that because you've been robbed of having um, decent sleep. And it's so interesting when parents get sleep, they suddenly want to enjoy their children more. They want to be with them because they're giving them more joy. And also the child is happier and more content mm -hmm. and able to play a bit more independently and not so you know whiny or anxious or overwhelm themselves. So it's really important to know that if you are really bogged down with sleep deprivation and it's taking a real toll on your lives, then getting help will be the best option because mm -hmm. if those families that are raising children in isolation and don't have that support system around them. Yeah. And also it, <clears throat> it's just an, another person from outside who's <laughs> well slept, who's <laughs> got mental clarity coming in and just, you know, it's giving you a little aha moment about things and helping you step through stuff. And and usually, you know, with your first, it's like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. What yes. do I do here? So it's just so good to have someone to just yeah. just be like a hug <laughs> helping you. Yeah, literally. And, and it's the support that's crucial. Um, mm. It's not about here you go, here's a plan, off you go and resolve it. It's that holding them accountable, holding their hand talking to them, um, you know, you're on day three now, what changes are you seeing? Okay, mm. this is happening. That's a really good sign. Keep going because by day five, this will start happening and appetites will start improving and mood will change and your mood will change and you're, you're experiencing all these changes. Mm. And it's being able to get them to see that. Because um, a lot of the time, like you talked about with clarity, is when you are bogged down, you cannot see a way out because we know that sleep deprivation robs us of hope and clarity and so me coming in and saying okay well let's look at it from your child's perspective this is what's happening every night this is how um you're doing sleep for your child or your toddler by going in at, you know every time your child stirs and doing it for them you're almost reinforcing that wake mm. but if we change things around and we gave them the skills to do it themselves this is what's going to happen Deep sleep will happen. Consolidated sleep will happen and things will start to improve. And it's almost like getting them to stand back and mm. have a bird's eye view of what's going on and go, okay. And a lot of parents, like you say, they have this aha moment of, well, of course he's going to wake up. I'm offering him television at two o'clock. He's having a snack. He's having a bottle. He's coming into our bed. Of course he's going to wake up and making it so attractive and appealing for him. Why would mm -hmm. he not want to? But sometimes when you're bogged down with it, you can't see a way out. You can't see that actually what you're doing is reinforcing it. Yeah. Um, no fault of their own. Of course, you just 
do whatever it takes to get sleep but it's about changing that perspective yeah. on sleep um and yeah giving them the skills to find that way out oh, so good it's been I feel like we could talk about this like all day <laughs> like forget like you know in every stage and then you know you've got things like you know, different kids are different. And, you know, we had a reflux baby and, you know, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and torture, <laughs> actual torture. Absolutely. Anyway, hey, um, so I will wind it up now, but um, we ask all our guests the same question at the end of each episode, which is what is one thing you swore you'd never do as a parent, but totally did or do now? Yeah, okay. So I think I said before I had children that I'm not going to let them watch television. <laughs> well, um, yeah. that's certainly changed um, because um, Peppa Pig, um, <laughs> and, Peppa Pig and In the Night Garden and Bluey um, were my saviours. And um, it's amazing what you can get done in a five-minute episode of Peppa Pig. You can, I can pretty much empty the bins and mop the floors and even hang out half a load of washing. So I used to use it to my advantage. I used to go, right, I'm going to line them up for an episode or a couple of episodes of um, Peppa Pig and I'm going to do all these jobs. And so um, I certainly changed my tune because I realised that if you have those kind of set times, particularly in the afternoon when they're getting a bit cranky, I'm going to plonk them and they're going to watch Peppa Pig and I'm going to get the dinner done because it means I can have a bit of peace um, and they're having a bit of a bit of a chill time. So, yes. <laughs> Watching TV, that's that's not so bad. Oh. I, um, I, because I owned Oh Baby and I had little kids and I was working from home um, for my eldest, there, there was, there may have been a time when I was asked if um, we were American because she watched so much American. <laughs> she had a little bit of an accent. So I realized then that I was watching, letting her watch far too much TV. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's wind that one back. <laughs> but yeah, that's good. I remember uh, one of ours, um, we had a lot of like those, you know, I'll never do that moment. Oh, yes. And we're like, oh, yeah, we totally did that. One yeah. was um, seeing a friend um, have their toddler eating hot chips, like fish and chips, hot chips. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, no. We'll never let our toddler eat hot chips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, that yeah. went real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I think by the third child, I was a bit like, oh, hot chip. Probably the first one, maybe. Only organic, home-cooked chip. Yeah. The third one. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're eating a bit of dirt on the ground. Okay. Absolutely. Just I'm not going to kill you. Just hand off it. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> oh, It's been such a joy to um, chat with you. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll no doubt hear from you again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. See ya. Bye. This episode was in partnership with H&M, supporting you on your parenting journey. Thanks for listening to the Oh Baby podcast. If you've found this episode useful and encouraging, make sure to share it with your village 